have a matchmaker. subtitles where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim, and we're placing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. And I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles, and at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bob the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is the 1941 genre-defying picture by Preston Sturges, uh, one of Hollywood's first true writer-directors, and that is Sullivan's Travels. Uh, Sullivan's Travels is the second... No, it's the first. It's the first time we've had a 1941 movie um, on the on the podcast, uh, at least from or at least from the AFI list itself. 1941 has always sort of stuck out to me as being one of the one of the big years in American movie history, and not just because of Citizen Kane. Though, of course, when you have the consensus greatest movie of all time made in that year, that year is going to be special, no matter what else they made around it. Uh, but in 1941, besides Citizen Kane, you've got just a really interesting slate of movies. And of course, all of this is happening, um, as anyone with a you know third grade history education can appreciate, all of this is happening in the final year before World War II comes to America in, in really severe, severe ways. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see the industry in a moment where they have figured out sound filmmaking. They have figured out the studio system. They have managed to to really get this down to a science. Uh, there has not been a lot of the weird transition, uh, either in terms of personnel or in terms of technology, which sort of, in a lot of ways, kind of mars the early 1930s. Um, the late 20s and early 30s definitely have some issues there. Uh, but by the time you get to the early 1940s, and especially 1941, uh, you get a, a truly great movie year. So on top of Citizen Kane, uh, we have a movie like The Maltese Falcon, which is going to be an AFI movie. Um, not literally the first film noir, but I mean, as, as far as defining the genre, 
I don't know how you could not begin in America, anyway. If you want to start with noir and talk about its, its origins in German cinema, then, then you should knock yourself out. But in America, for something which really defines the genre, especially as it stands as a detective or P.I. story, then I think you kind of have to start there. Um, you have Sullivan's Travels, which we'll come back to. Uh, you, we have two movies that I'll be talking about, The Devil and Daniel Webster, which is also occasionally referred to as um, All That Money Can Buy, which I think is unfortunate. So if you're looking for this on Letterboxd, you might see it as All That Money Can Buy. Um, but I think the original release was... The Devil and Daniel Jones, or the um, at least the one that people release it under now is The Devil and sorry, I read Jones. I shouldn't have read Jones. Uh, I do want to say while you're pausing, the movie poster for <clears throat> or the DVD cover it seems for The Devil and Daniel Webster is truly phenomenal. Yeah, The Devil and, and Daniel Webster is uh, a movie which has an awful lot going for it, and until Right before Matt's episode, I was going to save it for a different, um, a different episode entirely, but I bumped it up here in honor of our, of our theme. And the other film is The Little Foxes, um, which is by William Wyler and stars Betty Davis, maybe the, the classic uh, director-actress pairing of this time period. I don't know that there's another one I'd put above it. Um, and then, of course, other 1941 movies... Alfred Hitchcock makes his follow-up to his Best Picture winner, um, and of course that's Suspicion, with Cary Grant in a really interesting role, an early, um, another early role for Joan Fontaine. Uh, it's the year that The Lady Eve comes out, another Preston Sturgis film, as well as Ball of Fire, which we've talked about on the pod before. Both of those are just like screwballs par excellence, like I really think... At that point, you can see how, how polished and spit-shined the screwball is. And in animation, it's the year that Dumbo happens. Uh, not that there hadn't been even even better animated movies before then. I'm, I'm, you know, someone who's sympathetic to the idea of Fantasia, for example, being the superior movie. But it is a movie which I think does some really interesting work in what kind of animation you're going to put into a narrative feature. So like the pink elephants on parade stuff is, is this enormously creative uh, work that is the kind of stuff you could have easily put into Fantasia. And I think, I think everybody would have understood uh, what they were going for, but they, they make it part of a narrative feature instead, um, as opposed to being something which is more of an anthology. All this is to say, 1941 is a big year. It's a key year in American movies. Uh, the AFI list recognizes that. Um, even though as I was going back and crunching numbers on this, I was maybe a little bit shocked to find what years uh, had just as many or more uh, movies from them. So if you look at the, at the AFI list, there are, I think, eight, eight years that have three movies. Um, for those of you keeping track at home, we have done all the 1994 ones. Uh, they have they have all been taken care of at this point. Uh, there are three uh, from 71. We've taken care of all of those. And then I think the rest are all things that we will cover or, or you know, 
have covered in, in some part of the past. So that's 75, 71, 67, 60, 59, uh, 41, of course, and 39, which is very interesting to me because that is the quote-unquote miracle year, and that is not the, the year that has the most the most entries. No, the, uh, the years with the most entries, there are four apiece from 1982... 1976 and 1969, which really a nice. very yeah, thank you a very a very interesting um, selection of of years there. Yeah, I feel like after talking about all of the sex on Stanconi, I feel like a single a single nice for 1969 is is the least we can do in in part. This is the modest half of the podcast. <laughs> um, I, I'm looking. I just Google stuff for fun while Tim is talking. Um, related to what he's saying, and I'm on a, a page about 1941 movies right now, and I have the the top grossing in front of me. You may have looked at this or just know it because you're you, but I'm wondering if you have a guess what was number one. The top grossing film of 1940. I don't know this. Um, I I am willing to bet it is not any of the of the films that I have mentioned. Um, if I were to, if I were to throw out a guess, is it, is it how green was my valley? So of the ones you had mentioned before that, I think two of them are here. Uh, there's actually a fun story with one of them. The little foxes and road to Zanzibar are tied at sixth. And I just read that straight through when I was first looking at the list. So the little foxes road to Zanzibar is the movie I need. Um, Ball of Fire is tied for fifth. How Green Was My Valley is fourth. Ah. Third is Louisiana Purchase, a movie I've literally never heard of. Two is Honky Tonk. And number one is Sergeant York. You know, Sergeant York is one that I've, I've kind of been bouncing around for this list. It's not currently on there, but that doesn't mean it couldn't come back. Um, I mean, a film which, which honestly could be one of the the entrants here i mean it's a of a surprisingly a surprisingly nuanced movie for being a, a a pure propaganda kind of film you know a propaganda movie about a world war 1 hero on the eve of world war 2 um, it's it's not subtle about that aspect but it's it's also so interesting because its combat scenes are are so raw and and so violent and personal it's a it's an extremely interesting movie. Um, I should have thought about that. I wish I I wish I'd guessed Sergeant York, but I feel okay about having How Green Was My Valley at fourth. That's not terrible. So, well, first in the Navy it was tenth on this. So shout out to Abbott and Costello. Uh, what truly stands out to me about this list, though, is second through tenth place are all within a million of each other. So Honky Tonk's at 2.9 million, uh, in the Navy's at 1.9 million. And then Sergeant York decimates everything else at uh, 6,075,000 gross. So more than double second place, which, that I don't know, that just stands out to me as like a particularly large gap for a year like 41, too. Yeah, it was... Um... There is there is no doubting that it was a huge movie made by made by Howard Hawks, starring Gary Cooper, um, filled with a number of everybody's 
everybody's like favorite character actors. I mean, Walter Brennan's in there. Um, and of course it, it won Gary Cooper, his, his best actor award, um, which given the group of people he was up against, and we will talk about one of them here, given the people he was up against, that's kind of a malpractice thing, but whatever, it's the way it is. Um, and I mean, he's, he's very good in it. It's just 41, like we've said, is kind of a, kind of a little miracle year on its own. Um, to get back to the actual movie that I guess I'm supposed to talk about, I have reversed the reversed the field a little bit. Sullivan's Travel stands out as maybe the most maybe the most complex movie of 1941, uh, at least in America, and just sort of looking at it in terms of like its ideas. I mean, obviously from a filmmaking angle, Citizen Kane is a significantly more complex, difficult film than this one. But I think in terms of what it's chewing on, there's something about Sullivan's Travels which is really special and something which I, I find relevant all the time now. And maybe I'm saying this because it's one of my hobby horses. But essentially the film starts off with, a, with the last scene of a little action movie, I guess. It's got two guys fighting on a train and then in the first minute or two of the film, it says the end, which is a great twist. Um, this is this is the the movie that um, John Sullivan, played by Joel McRae, has just finished making for the studio. And Sullivan, who is you know he was born wealthy, went to boarding school, came to Hollywood, became a director. Um, really kind of made made his hits big in the beginning. Like, by the time he's in his mid-20s, he's making a small fortune. Um, just sort of a, a Wunderkin kind of guy. He's tired of making these comedies. Uh, he, is, he is over making these light comedies, which make tons of money and which people really adore. But he's decided he he wants to really make a movie that gets at the... The, the struggle and drama of the human spirit. So he is tired of making, for example, Hey, Hey, and the Hayloft. Uh, he is ready to go on to make a film called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, based on the made-up but not really novelist uh, Sinclair Beckstein, who is <laughs> shown... Uh, her, the the book itself is shown at the end of the, of the film, just in case you were missing the clear jabs at the socially conscious writers uh, of, of the early 1940s. But he's, he's desperate with the studio to try to make his own movie. He wants to make a picture for him after making so many for them. And what he decides to do is he's going to get out on the road dressed like a hobo without a dollar in his pocket and, you know, just kind of wander the country a little bit and see what he can find and he'll, you know, he'll come back when he's ready because the people at the studio challenge him, what do you know about poverty? And he's, he admits, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about poverty. Um, so he decides he's going to go out and, and find something. This is a very interesting first five or six minutes of the movie, but what I think really, really hammers that home for me is not the scene where he's talking to the two studio execs who are, like, making up stories about their own fake poverty to, like, try to 
you know, try to fool him or dissuade him from making his his drama. But it's a scene where he he goes home and he's got two manservants and one of them tells him, you know, I've got really bad feelings about this. You know, nobody wants to see a movie about poverty unless they have this sort of morbid curiosity about it. So so the rich don't want to see poverty because, it, you know, unless, again, they have that morbid curiosity, but most rich people don't want to know about it, and you can figure out why. But then poor people don't want to see it either. They know what poverty is like. And more than that, he says, they, they don't want their privacy disturbed. You know, they don't need someone putting that back in their face. They don't want some outsider telling them what it's like to be poor when they know already. And we sort of get from the next to the next line or two that one of his butlers apparently has been poor, has, has lived in poverty. Uh, and it sort of, it makes this first attempt he has to go out on the road and really like, you know, get some dirt under his fingernails or whatever. That sequence I think is not funny at all. Everything else before this has been funny. It's had the, the markers of screwball comedy on it. Everybody's been talking an absolute mile a minute. It is challenging His Girl Friday for speed supremacy. It's, it's absolutely nuts. But then he comes home and everything just sort of slows down. And there is, there is a series of good points being made by dishonest people. And then there's a series of better points being made by an extremely honest person. And that tonal shift happens so quickly, but it also feels earned. And this is, this is I think, the genius of the, of the guy who wrote it and directed it. So this is Preston Sturges. Um, I have moved the Lady Eve up and down this list so many times, I can't even remember if we've done a Sturges movie. You'll have to tell me. Have we, have we done Preston Sturges on here before? I didn't think so. So Preston Sturgis is this fascinating character in American movies who, when this was rare, it is no longer rare for a screenwriter to become a director, but when Preston Sturgis did it, it was basically unheard of. Uh, and for about 10 years, he makes movies outside of this as well, but for about 10 years, he is making in my estimation anyway, the smartest and funniest comedies of anyone in Hollywood and, and comedies which stand up to literally anybody else who has ever made them in, in that town. So you could take his, his sort of satire on, on the corporate world and consumerism in Christmas in July. Um, he makes a crazy funny movie about... Uh, a veteran returning home after seeing no service and the, the servicemen who try to adopt him basically called Hail the Conquering Hero, a very rare satire of World War II era soldiering during World War II, um, satirizes the news media in um, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, satirizes politics in The Great McGinty, and, and Sullivan's Travels is, I don't know that it's his best movie, I don't think I would put it there. I think once upon a time I would, but I wouldn't now. Um, it is a it is a film though, which I think does bear this complexity of comedy versus tragedy, of what kind of art can you make without experience, and if you don't have the experience, is it noble to go out and look for it on your own, or do you 
or would you do better to sort of stick with what you understand and work from that angle? And that's kind of what this what this movie is after. And I'll get into the specifics of that in, in a sec. Um, I don't know if if Sullivan's Travels is one you've come across. This the film is it's kind of. I don't want to say been rediscovered exactly, but I feel like in the past 15 years or so, this movie has really, really come on strong when Sturgis was sort of, was sort of subdued um, compared to someone like Howard Hawks making screwballs, for example. No, I haven't seen this one. Um, vaguely familiar with it as like a reference to Gulliver's Travels. Um, I'm not suggesting the movie is like adapting that at all but like i've I've heard them as reference points before and that's about it um so yeah this is not one i have any real familiarity with so the the film i mean it's it's as famous for being this incredible satire uh as it is for having a very very young veronica lake in it um so veronica lake shows up like 20 30 minutes into the movie um and at the, when she makes this movie, she is 18 or 19 years old. She is young. Um, and she looks young, and and she meets um, meets Sullivan in a, in a diner in Hollywood. He has been on the road a couple days. He shook his, his core of media and doctors <laughs> and servants who are driving behind him at like three miles an hour in an RV, basically. Um, cause his, his producers basically let him out to, to do it, but on those terms. So he like, he loses them basically in this sort of slapstick high speed sequence. And then eventually says to them, look, I'll meet you in Las Vegas in a few days, you know, leave me alone. Basically. He accidentally finds himself in Hollywood again. And he had this diner, um, he gets some ham and eggs from this young woman who is never named. She's only ever the girl, which is a very uh, Chaplin-esque touch, I think. Um, and and she sort of takes a shine to him. She's on her way out of town. She has failed at becoming a, a movie star, becoming a movie actress. Uh, and he is trying to, you know, keep his identity, obviously, as a you know major movie director with all the ins. He can, he can do a lot for her. And there's this this odd sort of push-pull going between them. And I don't just mean push-pull because they seem to find they seem to find themselves push-pulling each other into a swimming pool an awful lot. But what's what's interesting is like she really is kind of down and out, but she has uh, a certain level of like spunk and dry humor that allows her to, you know, kind of be above it, but at the same time she's very tender. Um she has like genuine, like deep feelings about him and about like trying to do the right thing and protecting him from the stupid stuff that he's trying to do. So what this turns into is a kind of road movie where the two of them, she's disguised as a boy. It is not a good disguise. The film admits that this is not a good disguise, but I think more importantly, she is still wearing Hollywood movie star makeup as a boy, which is a little weird, but we will we will not interrogate that so much. Um, it's a it's a movie where they they do go out on the rails. They alienate some hobos who are much better at jumping on the train than they are. 
And at the same time, there are a bunch of jokes about how he maybe isn't equipped for life on the rails because he has hay fever and he spends all his time in the train car sneezing. But then there are these montages. There are a number of montages, I'd say two or three, where there really is kind of like an ode to the common man thing going on. They're wordless. And and it's it's all done in such a way that you see these people who have been cast out of their homes by the Depression, cast out of their homes by the Dust Bowl or, or whatever other economic distress you can imagine, whatever kind of social ills you want to put on it. It is a racially integrated group. Um, you can see black men and white men part of it. And you, you get a sense of just, just how many men there are kind of drifting and, and looking for something. And it's, it's surprisingly moving. Um, Sturgis is, is at once making a film where there's a great deal of humor, there's an awful lot of slapstick, but there's also this very strong, um, this strong feeling for people who really don't have much. And I don't think that that section, or those sections, I should say, are exploitative at all. Um, I think that they're kind of lyrical, and they're very Hollywood, obviously, but they, they are not exploitative. They're not, like, you know, looking at this and saying, oh, isn't this entertaining? It's meant to feel much more journalistic. It's meant to feel a little bit more newsreel. The trouble with... Um, with Sullivan, is that he hasn't really learned his lesson. So he comes back to Hollywood again. He's about to, uh... He's about to essentially wind up his trip. He's sort of learned enough, he feels like, to, to understand how to make his movie. And then one night when he's out trying to, like, pass out some money to the, to the various bindle stiffs on the road, he is attacked by someone. And he gets a big knock on the head, he's basically concussed, and he wakes up um, punchy and tries to punch out a station agent at, at a train depot, gets himself sentenced to a chain gang, which is a real twist. This happens with like 20 minutes left in the movie, which is making you wonder how on earth are they going to get him out of this one. He spends a fair bit of time trying to figure out how he's going to get out of jail, how he's going to get a call to his lawyer, etc. There is, of course, a sadistic chain gang boss. Um, but one night, everybody gets to go to a black church to see some movies, essentially. And there is this remarkable scene where there is a, um, there's a minister, there's a, an African-American minister, um, who is telling his congregation to clear out the first few rows of, of pews for their guests who are coming in. Uh, they have it worse off than they do. He's singing Go Down Moses as these prisoners sort of shuffle in um, two by two. Then the movie comes on, and it's Pluto. You know, Pluto in black and white, of course, but Pluto is there, and Pluto is getting into all sorts of trouble and everybody is losing their minds laughing at this short. I don't know that I think this short is funny. Maybe it's good I wasn't there in 1941 because it's mostly just Pluto running into stuff and there's a certain level of uh, poor dog in me, but whatever. Um, and Sully at first is is watching this sequence and and, you know, sort of 
keeping his grim face. I mean, the guy's been sentenced to prison for six years. Everyone thinks he's dead. And so he, he is sort of, you know, at a point of despair. And then he just keeps watching, and soon he is laughing along with the rest of the crowd. And that's basically the idea of the film, is that you can show someone a tragedy if you want to, but it is better for the people to have a comedy. That people who are genuinely suffering, struggling, and so on, it is better for them to have something that takes them out of it, something to laugh at, something to distract them, something to, to give them a joy that they can't find in the day-to-day than it is to show them some kind of socially conscious thing which might arouse them or make them recognize themselves. And where I think the movie is interesting, and I realize I am talking a lot, but where I think the movie is is very interesting is it I think it, it knows that neither one of these approaches for art is necessarily going to fix anything. So of course it's very down on the sort of you know, on the, the Sinclair Lewis, John Steinbeck version of, of the world where you, like, show people how bad things are and then they go forth and, like, want to change them or, you know, recognize themselves or what have you. But on the other hand, I think it also recognizes that a movie is just a movie. Like, the end of the film, eventually, because this is a movie, Sully is, comes up with a ruse to to get his picture in the paper across the country, which is to say that he killed the film director, John L. Sullivan, which is a fun little twist. Um, gets himself noticed, and of course he did not kill himself, so he gets out of jail. And at the end, there is the final montage on top of the film where you see all these like laughing faces again because those are the people who are most mirrored in the theater itself. It is an extremely interesting movie, to say the least. It's funny in a lot of places. Like, I, I always laugh when I watch it. It's on Tubi, by the way, so anyone can watch this thing. This thing is available to anyone who can stomach ads. Uh, but the film ends with this with this message, which I think is very even-handed. An idea which I think is very even-handed, and which I think is, is very 1941. Um, thoughts about this one before I kind of drive us into the the next two movies here uh my thought was mostly how it is interesting that this film striking a very measured and important message i think but thinking about that in 1941 which right is the to put it mildly the real come down from the u.s of distracting itself from what's really happening in in Europe um, in particular. Um, so right, just that idea of like being shown the real thing versus being distracted from the real thing. And like, yeah, I mean, it's super complicated. Anyway, but just thinking about that in, in 1941 is really fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie which I think knows that it's just a movie. And, like, which I don't think pretends it can solve everyone's problems. I think it just thinks a movie can alleviate things for 30, 60, 90 minutes. But it is not going to change anything. And this may seem obvious to all of us at home, but if you were a Hollywood director, you would be amazed at how many of them seem to think 
that in a 90, 120, 135 minute movie, they are creating some kind of social change. Um, and, and Sturges, I, I struggle with this because I, I do think that there's something about the, about just show the, the people Pluto and give them something to laugh at, which I think is sort of a dead end for, for a certain kind of person. Um, but I also just, I appreciate, I think, most of all, the humility of the film. A film which, which understands what its limits are and what the limits of film are generally. Um, or at least at least in the genre. And, and understanding what it's good for. And that, to me, is, is a very special thing. Yeah, to be clear, like, no movie is, is <laughs> changing anything, honestly. Like, there's nothing you can solve in that amount of time. But, um... I was more thinking just about the, like, none of this is on Sturges. Like, I think what he's doing is super interesting and important, but just the, like, give him another Pluto cartoon, and eventually that leads to the, like, <laughs> well, then we're going to be dragged into World War II by increasing catastrophe, but only when it hits here. So, like, um... I, I'm, I'm just ruminating on that idea more generally than in Sturgis's film, which I think, I, I mean, I agree with you, like, oftentimes a movie is just a movie, and, like, it can do different things, but it should remember that it's doing them as a movie. So, yeah, that's Sullivan's Travels. Um, again, I don't know if this is one that you, the listener, have come across, but if, if you haven't, it's definitely worth your time. It is 90 minutes on the dot, um, a, a real quick movie. And one that every time I every time I watch it, I do come away with something new. Um, this past viewing for me was my my third time with it, and it continues to slay where it's supposed to be funny, and it continues to be really thought provoking where I think it needs to be thought provoking. So we've already introduced the the two films um, by a pair of Williams and by a pair of immigrant Williams at that. Um, so William Dieterle was born in Germany and then came to America. Um, and I think William Wyler was originally um, born in, in, like, Switzerland or something? No, France. Was originally born in France, um, came to America. Both of them imports uh, who, who went on to become wonderful directors. We will start with Dieterle's version, uh, and that is The Devil and Daniel Webster, or All That Money Can Buy, whatever, man. If you are someone who had to read the short story of the same name um, by Stephen Vincent Benet when you were in high school, then this is going to sound awfully familiar to you. Uh, but this is a, a film which, which follows the short story reasonably closely. Um, essentially, a man named Jabez Stone, who is living in New Hampshire um, and deciding that he has had too many troubles on his farm more or less accidentally summons the devil. Um, so Jabez Stone is is played by James Craig, and more importantly, though, Walter Houston is playing uh, the devil who goes by Mr. Scratch in this film. Mr. Scratch is the most charismatic, slimy son of a gun I think I have ever witnessed in a movie. There is some stuff that happens, which we'll talk about later, Um he is just an absolute lightning bolt. Um, so Walter Houston, we have talked about before when he was in Dodsworth, when he was the in the Dodsworth of Dodsworth. 
We will talk about him again when he performs in his son's Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is an AFI movie. Um, but this, to me, is maybe my favorite role of his. There are there are maybe better roles, or there are certainly more iconic roles, but there is not one which I think is just, like, so incredibly um, attractive. And, of course, the devil would have to be, or otherwise everyone would shoo him away. But... The salesmanship, the pitch, basically sell me your soul and I will, uh, I'll give you seven years of good luck. I'll give you seven years of making lots of money. Um, and then, you know, after seven years, we can decide what to do. We can see what the lease is like. So Jabez Stone takes the, takes the devil's deal, um, finds some gold in his barn. And from then on, things really start to go uphill, as it were. He gets a giant mansion. Uh, the maid is transfigured. They, like, hire a maid, and then she turns into Simone Simon, who is um, just a cute-as-a-button French actress. Uh, she is playing Belle in this. And while things are, of course, going up for Jabez in terms of his finances, things are obviously going down in terms of his personal life. Uh, he is having a, a pretty open affair with Belle, um, he has a wife, of course, uh, and his mother is watching, his poor mother who has to witness all of this. And time goes by. After seven years, the devil comes back and there's some, uh, there's some, you know, discussion to be had about what we're going to do next. And in the end, what Jabez Stone decides to do is he, he asks for the intercession of, of course, Daniel Webster, who is one of the, the three congressmen of, of your A-push class, basically. So between Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, um, the guy who sort of represented New England, who is most famous for being the sort of, not abolitionist, certainly, but being kind of a counter to Calhoun, uh, being a tremendous orator and, and lawyer, sort of a mythic figure, in American history, which of course has only been accentuated by the story and the movie. Um, so basically what happens is that Jabez um, gets in, gets into some trouble. He sees that somebody else who had a deal with the devil is now dead. So he's now very, very frightened for himself. And he calls on Daniel Webster as a fellow uh, son of New Hampshire to to, you know, tr speak for him at a jury trial. And there's some back and forth here. Um, essentially, Webster puts up his own soul. You know, if he can win the jury trial, then he will, um, then he will get to keep his soul and restore Jabez's. Uh, but of course, if he loses the trial, then he will give up his soul and, um, so will Jabez and everything will just go real badly unless you're unless you're Mr. Scratch. Before we get to the trial aspect of this, is this one that you had to had to do in high school? This this is a classic like junior year short story here. I it, maybe in general it was not for us. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't I haven't read the short story at all. I, I will contribute though that I know what Daniel Webster looks like, and he looks like an owl. So that's funny to picture in <laughs> all of this. Also, I have been looking at some stills from the film, and Mr. Scratch, 
which is my favorite name ever now. Looks like a demented Abe Lincoln chomping on a sh- cigar. And, you know, I'm hooked. I'm ready. <laughs> but, yeah, I have no... Uh, I, I've never read the short story, so I have no sense of where this trial goes. I'm interested. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, you're in for a treat. So what happens is is that, essentially, um, Webster kind of gets outlawed by the devil, which, again, is fitting. Um, he he kind of leaves it up to the devil who the who the judge and jury will be. He's kind of he wants Americans basically, and so Americans are are what Mister Scratch provides. So the judge in the case is Judge Hawthorne from the Salem witch trials, who is who is presiding over the court. And I'm gonna I'm just gonna straight up read the list of people who are sort of figures of American myth who I think were better known 100, 150 years ago than they are now. But Mr. Scratch is introducing the jury, and he says, Captain Kidd, he killed men for gold. Simon Gertie, the renegade, he burned men for gold. Governor Dale, he broke men on the wheel. Asa, the black monk, he choked them to death. Floyd Ireson and Steve Bonnet, the fiendish butchers. Walter Butler, the king of the massacre. Big and Little Harp, robbers and murderers. Teach, the cutthroat. Morton, the vicious lawyer. And General Benedict Arnold. You remember him, no doubt. And Daniel Webster says that it is a jury of the damned and that it is monstrous. And Scratch says to him, You asked for a jury trial, Mr. Webster. Your suggestion, the quick or the dead. And Scratch says that they are Americans all. And this, to me, is why I think this is a very special movie. Is because in 1941, all you have to do is look at Sergeant York to notice that even on the outset, or the onset, I guess I ought to say, of World War II for Americans, there is an interest in showing this sort of propagandistic America, America, Uber Alice, even a, even a hick farm guy can, can come back from being a pacifist to gun down as many heinies as the rest of them. In this film, it is expressly stated that there is a real sense of criminality, wickedness, evil, murder, some really ugly stuff. Like, the sequence itself is kind of scary because these guys are all coming out of the basement, but of course, you know, hell. So, like, all of these guys are sort of coming up one by one, and they're all sort of scary-looking. And and you can sort of visualize, like, each man's crimes. You can imagine, like, Governor Dale being there as men are broken on the wheel. Um, when Aza the Black Monk comes up, you get, like, I honestly got, like, a little shiver, and I'm, like, choking people. Like, it's a, it's a scary little sequence, and this is very much part of America, is that these people who have kind of faded from history, you know, Daniel Webster has not faded from history, I mean, he was a, an important figure, and I'm not suggesting he should have, but the image of him is as this basically decent, almost chivalric kind of figure in the Senate. And what the film is proffering instead is a very, very dark underbelly of American history and saying these men are a jury of Jabez Stone's peers, that these 
terrible men. And, and again, Mr. Scratch is the devil. The devil is not going to play fair. Like, that's not his, that's not the point of the devil. The devil is there to be, to be tricky and to be a car salesman, to be, to be the, the shadow of Abe Lincoln with a cigar. And like, they do some funky stuff with Houston's eyebrows too, which I just adore. Like they do, they do all sorts of wild things. Um, but the, the film is, is very, very cognizant of a certain kind of like, ugliness in the American strain, which I think you, you have to kind of struggle to find even in contemporary American films. There's always like a, a little silver lining of, oh, things aren't that bad. Look at what we fixed. But here's, here's a list of, of this jury crew, which is made up of literal pirates and, and, and literal uh, murderers and thieves. And of course, the the foreman of the jury, Benedict Arnold himself. I mean, just an absolutely uh, incredible murderer's row, as you will, of of the scum and villainy of American history. So that to me is like this wonderful thing where Jabez Stone, a greedy little cheating on his wife, um, capitalist himself, somebody who, frankly probably is on his way to belonging with these guys and being on someone else's jury in the in the years to come, um, finds himself guilty of the avarice, which is just the American dream in other terms. And that, to me, is just this incredibly potent moment. Now, of course, the devil does not win. Um, in the end, Daniel Webster manages to manages to appeal to all of these men as Americans, and, and he wins the trial, and Jabez Stone's soul and Daniel Webster's stone alike get to go free, but, and this is a very funny moment, Mr. Scratch curses Daniel Webster and says, you will never be president, which of course he was not. Um, so, <laughs> like, even in, even in defeat, Mr. Scratch has a little, a little nudge in the ribs for, for Daniel Webster, who has exerted himself pretty boldly. Um, I have one more thing to talk about, but I'm sure that I have um, whetted your appetite with a discussion of the American dream and how close that is to, to murder, thievery, and literal piracy. The Venn diagram is a circle. Um, I mean, I'm always ready for talk of that. I will say the devil should have won. <laughs> And I did, after you mostly described the trial, I started looking at just some kind of stuff on this, on this film. Um, and it does mention, in addition to all the things you've said, like that jury being a bunch of people who've rebelled against their fate. Um, and I would just, I like adding that to this consideration of the avarice of the American dream as well and the corruption of it. Um, Right, with that thoroughly rampant sense of rugged individuality that goes into American culture and the American dream. Um, so these dudes who have rebelled against station and like communal belonging, really. Um, they are the ones who are the representatives of hell. <laughs> um, so I like that, adding that into, but I, I'm not... I'm not going to steer us off too far by ranting about the American dream and its bullshitness, but 
Go devil. Go Mr. Scratch. You should have won. So at the end of the film, this is a this is a movie which I think in talking about like why it's so interesting and why it's so compelling, I've I've kind of undersold the filmmaking. But there is the last like forty five seconds or so of this movie are I, I honestly I have a hard time thinking of a better ending. There there are other better endings, but not many. Um, for one thing, there is like a big picnic, and and um, Ma Stone has has made this big pie, and she's like taking it out, and she's gonna offer Daniel Webster the first piece, and the pie is gone. Well, where did the pie go? Cut, Mister Scratch sitting on a fence eating the pie with both hands, <laughs> and just like nomming that thing, just absolutely yeeting the pie, um, is, first of all, hilarious. The devil will have his pie, and in the end it turns out that she's made a much bigger one for everybody, so it's no loss that they lost the, the little one. Even so, the devil has had an incredible moment, just, I don't know, I just, I love that cut so much. And then the, the very last part of this the devil sort of wipes his hands off, licks his fingers, finishes getting the, the pie out from the back of his teeth, whatever. Gets down off the fence a little bit, comes closer to the camera, starts looking in his book. And then Houston's eyes start, like, searching the audience a little bit. This is, a, this is definitely a fourth wall breaking moment. And he is looking around. And what he eventually settles on is you. He is making full-on, fourth-wall-breaking eye contact with you. And he takes his index finger, points at you, and then gives the biggest grin in the world. And that's the end of the movie. It is... I don't... It's, it's hard to imagine a more perfect ending for one of these. Um... And it is a film which, technically speaking, I think is really wonderful throughout, but that that early fourth wall break into such incredible effect right at the end, um, I just think technically this movie is really special as well. Anything else to say before we move on to our next one here? No, I don't think so. I mean, <clears throat> you know my, I guess, inherent fondness for something that's going to kind of thumb its nose at the more patriotic takes that could be happening in 1941. So I'm curious where the little foxes goes. Um, so yeah, let's hear it. All right. Our second movie, the little foxes, uh, William Wyler, uh, directing a screenplay from Lillian Hellman, uh, from her play of the same name. And this one, like I mentioned before, stars Betty Davis. Uh, it also has Herbert Marshall in here, who is not as big a name now as he should be. Uh, Marshall is one of the, the wonderful actors of, of the 30s. It also has a very young Teresa Wright in here. I'm pretty sure Patricia Colling won the, the Oscar for... No, she was just nominated. She and, and Wright were just nominated for Supporting Actress. My bad. But otherwise, this is a... One of the better reviewed films of the year, and of course one of the one of the money makers, as we found out earlier, even if it doesn't quite compare to Sergeant York. The film is for those of us who were here for our last episode where I talked about the Magnificent Ambersons, I feel like this fills a pretty similar niche. 
Um, it's a movie which is about a wealthy family, which is simultaneously kind of going downhill a little bit. Um, so the, the Hubbard family is the one in question. Um, Betty Davis is playing a married woman, Regina Hubbard Giddens. Um, her brothers, Benjamin Hubbard and Oscar Hubbard, played by Charles Dingle and uh, Carl Benton Reed, are sort of in on a business plan together. Um, what the actual plan is really doesn't matter. What matters is that the three of them are constantly trying to outmaneuver each other in terms of getting the business deal done. So all of them want this deal done um, having to do with a mill. Basically, they're trying to make a cotton mill. Um, but none of them can quite get a fee down um, for each of them to buy in with. There's a lot of discussion back and forth. And part of the problem is that the wealthiest person is... Um, is Regina's husband, Horace Giddens. And Horace is not well. He is not living at home with his family. Um, he and Regina are, are pretty much estranged at this point. And more so, there he would not like put up the money for this mill. So Regina does not want to be shut out of the mill. And at the same time, her brothers kind of need her to be in on it because they can't quite raise enough money themselves, uh, but they also don't want her in control of it. So from the very beginning, there is this courteous war that's being fought um, at this very stately southern mansion, um, and she's at a disadvantage, of course, because her husband doesn't want to pay up for it, but it also, of course, because it's Betty Davis, um, Regina is also very much the most capable of the three Hubbard siblings. And so she, you know, sort of schemes her way into trying to to hatch a plan to get the money out. And what, I won't, like, do the whole plot here the way that I kind of did for Devil and Daniel Webster, um, because I think if this is not one you've seen, seeing how things unwind is part of the joy of it. But eventually... It looks like there's this moment where everything is about to fall in on all three of the Hubbard conspirators for this mill. Because someone has been sent to steal some papers out of the bank, and specifically steal some papers out of Horace's desk at the bank, which are worth an awful lot of money and which Horace was not supposed to have noticed that they're gone, but because Horace has come home, he just sort of checks in at the bank, sees that they're missing, and at this moment, it looks like he is able to really drop the hammer on all three of the Hubbards for conspiring and, and stealing this money so they can go on with their mill without, without his say-so. Um... But what he decides to do, what Horace decides to do instead, he decides he's going to mess with his will a little bit. He understands that he doesn't have much longer, but he knows that he has enough time left for a middle finger for his scheming wife. And that is, he's going to change his will, he will leave her absolutely everything, 
but the the papers, which are some like railroad bonds, he decides he's going to leave the railroad bonds to the guy who stole them. And that way, he doesn't want to involve the police, he doesn't want to get a whole court case going, he doesn't want to play the game of who sues who. He just wants to make sure that his wife is left out of what she wants. Because she has time and again gone behind his back and there is there is no love between them. This is the film for 1941, and again, when Citizen Kane is in the year, there is always going to be a more technically perfect film. I think this has to be number two for me, and I realize that's a fairly bold statement mentioning the movies that we've mentioned and, and not mentioning some other movies that are certainly out there uh, for discussion. But the film itself has a really terrific group of... Um, collaborators on it aside from aside from Weiler and Hellman and Betty Davis and Herbert Marshall and so on um, the movie is cut by Daniel Mandel who is uh, one of the great editors of the 30s and 40s Meredith Wilson does the music so if you're sitting there and thinking about 76 trombones yes it's that Meredith Wilson he he does the the score for this but the cinematography is by Greg Toland and again, not even his best work of the year. He made Citizen Kane. That is his best work of the year. But where that movie is very famous for using deep focus, the best shots in this film use focus in a more traditional manner. It is hard on Davis in a moment that matters most and soft on Marshall. So not long after... Not long after Horace tells Regina that he is going to change his will, he starts feeling a heart attack coming on. He has pills for it, but he is in a wheelchair. He is, I mean, he can literally walk, but it's a struggle for him. He knows he will not be able to get to his pills without some help. As he is starting to, you know, starting to go downhill here, as he is starting to feel feel himself dying, he asks Regina to go get the pills, and she just stares at him. Then, we have the shot. While he is scrambling as best he can up the stairs on hands and knees, trying to get up there, trying to get to his pills before he literally dies, all of that is in soft focus, while the actual focus in the shot is on Davis's face. And that face is impassive, it is hard, it is cool. She knows that she is as good as murdering her husband right now, but we can watch it on her face how little it bothers her. And that is such a tremendous moment because there are not many there are not many moments like that in 40s movies. I mean, all of us have seen Game of Thrones now. We all kind of have internalized that particular ethos of, you know, what you're what you're supposed to expect from scheming families and all that. But there are not that many examples of the character we're supposed to key in on in a movie. And when audiences came to this film, they did not come for Herbert Marshall or Teresa Wright. They came for Betty Davis. It is very, very interesting to make her such an outright villain in that moment. And furthermore, to use the camera to absolutely hammer that home. All of this is being done, again, by pretty much people at the very top of her game. 
this is the finest Betty Davis performance I've seen. I am not like a Betty Davis uh, uh, stan. I'm not a huge Betty Davis person, but I've seen close to 10 of them at this point. This is the best one. It, it is just an enormously great performance. Um, really measured, terrific use of, of like vocal register. Um, just like this incredible control that she displays all through the movie. She never really like gets too far out of a particular band, which I think is interesting. You watch her other stuff and you can see her sort of float from, from piece to piece, emotion to emotion. And there's less of that here. Um, you have William Wyler, who, again, one of the great directors, one of the true perfectionists in cinema history, um, who was who had been on sort of this hot streak since um, since the 30s. So he had made Dodsworth, he had made Dead End, he'd made Jezebel, he'd made Wuthering Heights, he'd made The Westerner, he made The Letter. Um, and he would go on to, to win Best Director for Mrs. Miniver the following year. And then to win Best Director again for Best Years of Our Lives a few years after that. Like, someone who I think was just having like a five or six year stretch like you almost never see. Certainly not now, and, and rarely then. But Weiler was, had, a, had a true claim to be one of the two or three best directors in Hollywood at the time. And of course there was no one more innovative than Greg Toland in 1941 with, with photography. So it's it's this combination of the very cutting edge, the very vanguard, um, the best of the best in Hollywood, giving best of the best kind of performances and work. Um, just a really, really spectacular movie. One that, I, again, I don't know if this is one that people see unless they're just sort of looking through Betty Davis or looking through William Wyler, but it really does deserve to be thought of as one of the three or four best movies of the year, full stop. Um, and I say that knowing what year it is, of course. Other thoughts on The Little Foxes here? I don't think I have anything. Um, can you say more about the 1941-ness of it, though? Yeah, so for me, it's it's about like what Hollywood had sort of aspired to for the past 10 years in terms of like making a better, more polished product. Uh, I think about it more in terms of in 1935, you could have made this movie with the same people, I think. Um, but Davis wasn't Davis yet. Weiler wasn't Weiler yet. I think in 1941, it represents kind of like the cream of the crop for this particular generation of of people who, who really did get interrupted by World War II as well. Um, I mean, Davis continues to make movies into the 50s, but after after Weiler, the partnership kind of fades. Uh, Tolan dies really young. Um, I mean, honestly, the height of his career is 1941. And Weiler, of course, we've talked about, but like he gave up, what, like five years of his professional movie-making career to essentially make documentaries for the army. Um, so he, he made in 1944, what I think is one of the, the very best docs in American history called Memphis bell about a B 17 crew. But like he is, he makes better movies than this afterwards, but I think it's, there's a culmination aspect to, to his career which I think is is really seen in just like what incredible vantage points he finds for his camera, the kind of performances he gets out of people, um, 
he's sort of famous for being hard on actors, but also getting great performances out of them. Um, and I think that's that's especially true here because for for a movie like this, there are not a lot of people who were big big names at the time. It's really just Davis and, and Marshall, and then everyone else kind of like fills in the gaps. But he is getting such special performances, performances that fill a certain uh, note that needs to be played from people who you don't see a lot. Um, for example, I think I think Charles. Dingle is really terrific in this movie. Um, he's playing this sort of fey, heavily accented uh, southern bachelor, but he, or not bachelor, he's married. I don't know why I said bachelor. Because it it's he seems gay. That's why I said that, because he's like playing someone who, who sort of presents as homosexual. And he's providing the same note over and over again, but it never feels dull. Like, there are a lot of people who Weiler is getting that kind of performance out of very much the the 3 and D role player where Betty Davis is meant to be the person taking 30 shots a game. All right, now you're speaking my language. I got it. <laughs> Does that mean we are we are ready to, to do spiel here? I think so. Let's spiel it up. All right, let's see if the cat will let me will let me get through all of this. I'm amazed that he has let me get through as much of this as he has. All right, so... The original AFI movie this this week is Sullivan's Travels by Preston Sturges. One of three, the first of three, 1941 movies on the AFI list. And, I mean, by their, by their account, by my account, uh, by almost everybody's account, one of the very best movies of 1941, which is really one of the, one of the best movie years in, in our country's history. So I tried to highlight two... Two films which maybe don't get as much shine as some of those other AFI-style films, but which I think are every bit as good as most of the others. And the first is William Dieterle's 1941. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's like kind of a drama. It's sort of a courtroom drama, but also a a very funny movie, and that's The Devil and Daniel Webster. Um, A film which looks at American culture in a way that I think is very interesting for 1941, it's, it's got some hero worship. Obviously, Daniel Webster gets some hero worship on, but it's it's really just as, just as focused on the pertinence of American vice as it is in American values and the historical quality of the bad that went into the founding of the nation and went into the the early years. Um, I mean, Benedict Arnold is sort of the punchline there, but he is he is hardly the whole ball game. And, and the fact that Jabez Stone is inspired to sell his soul to the devil for wealth, um, which of course is what America sells to people from 1840 or 1940 or 2020, uh, whatever the year is, that's what America sells. And the film takes a, takes a dim view of that, which I think is an interesting choice for a film of that year. And then in The Little Foxes, um, a movie about the treachery of a family in in the Southeast in the early years of the 1900s. Again, a very magnificent Ambersons kind of picture. I think of that as kind of being the apex of a studio system in which you have studio employees, studio players, um, people who cut their teeth making movies for um, 
for all of these different classic Hollywood studios, MGM, Paramount, RKO, what have you, uh, this is an RKO movie. Sort of like, sort of like Devil and Daniel Webster is an RKO movie. The film is, is taking people at the very height of their talents, people who were not just applying the lessons of sound movies that they were learning throughout the 1930s, but exceeding them, passing them, and making really special um, special work in, in 1941, and which kind of represents a, an apex in the career. Maybe it's not literal in the case of, of people like Toland or, or Weiler, and of course people much, much more versed in Betty Davis can disagree with me about what her greatest performance is. But these are people who are undoubtedly like at the height of their craft and a craft that had been honed to sort of reach this point and which comes back after the war and is never quite the same again. You know, it's, it's a different cinema in 1945 and 46 than it was in 41. So I leave it to you. Uh, the devil and Daniel Webster or the little foxes. I like that. These are so different in a way and kind of the, the portion of 1941 that they are encapsulating or responding to, um, which makes it interesting and also harder in a different way. Um, what you said in the spiel where you weren't sure how to classify the devil and Daniel Webster, I'm going to use as the like tipping point because I think that does tie it to Sullivan's travel in a Sullivan's travels in more so than the little foxes is doing. Um, I'm super interested in the little foxes as not diegetically, but in a more meadow way, kind of a commentary on this, the studio system up to 41 and then how it breaks after the war. Um, <clears throat> or just can't quite live up to the same heights. Um, like th that's super interesting to me, but I do see more connections, more similar connections to 1941 as a theme between the devil and Daniel Webster and, and Sullivan's travels and the weirdness of both of them. It sounds like, and kind of the inventiveness of both of them. Um, and the reckoning with what it means to be American, um, Certainly those aren't unique to 1941, but I do think it's interesting how they're doing that right before the war. And then, I mean, I'm sure there are movies not long after that are doing it, but there aren't big ones, I don't think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, it does seem like there's a certain, uh, I, don't know, I guess, commentary or like ideological bent they're able to get into that late 1941 and onward is just absolutely going to break as well for a while. Um, right. Of course, Sergeant York is still the biggest movie of that year. So like, it's not like they're winning, but um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just slightly more interested in the, um, I mean, I'm a sucker for the commentary they're both giving, but just like the, the weirdness of them sticks out to me. Yeah. Either way, I was going to be very happy it's one of those where these are two movies I really, really love and would have been very happy to see either one go through and, of course, sad to see the other go uh, go home. I think I think if there is one person who is sort of still poking fun at America in that way, it's Preston Sturges during the war. Um, 
but otherwise it, you're you're pretty much right that there are very few directors, studios, etc., that are you know willing to take a swing quite uh, take a swing quite that hard at at the United States while we're fighting Nazi Germany and Japan. Like I think I think most people are not quite willing to get to that point in the same way that my cat is worried that I'm not going to get to his snack. But the the movies are are definitely sort of getting in line, towing that line, and and it comes down to someone like Preston Sturges in a movie like Hail the Conquering Hero to continue to poke fun. Um, one last thing that I'll say about The Little Foxes, which was on Amazon, might still be on Amazon, so if, if it is there, I definitely encourage people to check that out. But like I said earlier, it is from a stage play. It is from Lillian Hellman's, um, Lillian Hellman's play. You would never know it was a play. And this is one of the, not to get into this now, but like, I'm not the only person who has an issue with movies from plays being too much like plays, resembling to them too much. You would never know Matt is raising his hand in agreement as well. You would never know that The Little Foxes was a play. It is simply, it is simply shot like a movie and and as if it was just a great screenplay by Hellman as opposed to being a, a great play by Hellman which of course it was first I'm pretty sure we've talked about that concept before so I don't think it's uh, really all that tangential to bring it up here that is exciting to hear um, I love plays I love movies I can invest in a movie that looks like a play if you're honest to me about what it's going to look like to begin with but um Right. They are different spaces that when they when it's when it's not easy to tell that one stems from the other, that is ideal to me. Which is something that, that Weiler was really masterful with. So before we before we head out, let's let's recap. So Matt has chosen the Devil and Daniel Webster to replace Sullivan's Travels on the AFI list. Uh, both of those movies come from 1941, which is our theme for, for the episode. If you liked what you heard, if you wanted to hear about another important year, the year 2000 and the rap hits of 2000, um, and hear about that through the lens of Outcast Stankonia, you can check out Part one of this episode, how convenient for you that there is something about that, if you are that specific person. Uh, if you are looking for other episodes of this podcast, if you are looking for his blog, my blog, if you're looking for his Spotify, my letterbox, if you're looking for background about the two of us as the weirdos who do this, you can check all of that out at subtitlespodcast.com. We'll see you next time.